So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, as we continue our studies in this epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 1. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant, but you not rather to mourn. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Amen. And we know that God always blesses the reading of His own inspired Word. Now, remember by way of introduction that one of the great problems I said in the church in Corinth was that they were being unduly influenced by their environment. They were not only in Corinth, but unfortunately, Corinth was in them. In the first four chapters, we saw how they were influenced by the fruitless speculations of the philosophical schools, which led to division in the church, what we might call sins of the mind. And in chapter 5, Paul changes the emphasis from the sins of the mind to the sins of the flesh. You will remember that Corinth was in a very immoral place. It was the Amsterdam or the San Francisco of the ancient world. The skyline was dominated by the temple of Aphrodite that housed a thousand temple prostitutes who descended into the city each evening to ply their trade among the traders, the merchants, and the sailors who frequented that city. It also held a shrine to Apollos, which glorified the male physique and became a center of homosexuality, and young boys were treated like commodities among the Corinthian elite. In fact, so associated was Corinth with immorality and sexual promiscuity that the verb in the Greek language, Corinthianize, meant to engage in immorality, and the noun Corinth was used of a prostitute. And in this moral decadent society, it comes as no great surprise that the church had not escaped from the coercive and corruptive influence of the city. We discover in chapter 5, Corinth was not simply a divided church, but it was a disgraced church, a church that accommodated and tolerated immorality of the worst kind. And let's go straight to the text. I want you to notice, first of all, the problem exposed. Look at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. The problem stated simply is that a member of the Corinthian church had fallen into immorality, and the actual immorality is identified for us. The type of immorality is identified for us when Paul says, a man has his father's wife. In other words, there was a form of incest being tolerated in the church. The phrase, the father's wife, indicates it wasn't his natural mother, but someone who had married his 
father at a later date. Now, that didn't in any way minimize the crime because the Old Testament made it clear that relations between a man and his stepmother were in the same category as relations between a man and his own mother. And so, in Leviticus chapter 18 and verses 7 to 8, in the Old Testament law, the crimes are set side by side, and no distinction is made between them, and the same punishment should result for both. Indeed, such practices, even in the moral cesspool of the ancient world, were considered to be overtly wicked in ancient society. So, Paul says in verse 1, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. We know that such a relationship was forbidden in Roman law. Cicero, a Roman lawyer who lived about a century before Paul wrote this letter, speaks of a woman who had married her son-in-law. And he says, oh, to think of the woman's sin, unbelievable, unheard of in all experience, save this single incident. So, even among paganism generally, never mind the churches specifically, this sin was considered to be a wicked, wicked thing. It was a serious sin. But not only was it a serious sin, it was a scandalous sin, because Paul says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality. The authorized version has it commonly reported. It's the Greek word holos, from which we get our English word holistic, which means everywhere, everywhere generally. News of this sin had spread like wildfire through the churches. It was scandalous. People were outraged. They couldn't believe that this was actually happening. But not only was it serious and scandalous, it was continuous. The uh, present tense has his father's wife indicates that this was a sin that was going on and still being practiced. But added to that, we know that this man's father was still alive. And we know that from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul urges the church to receive this brother who had fallen into sin back again because of his repentance. And he says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 12, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. So, it seems that both this man and his father were still living. So, this was a serious sin. It was a scandalous sin. It was a continuous sin. And then it was what we might say a multiple sin. It wasn't just the fact that he had taken his father's wife, but because no discipline is called for for the woman, that we can conclude that she wasn't even a Christian. And that was, again, something that was forbidden those who marry have to marry in the Lord. The believer is not to be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. So, here we have a member of the church in Corinth who is guilty of serious sin, scandalous sin, continuous sin, and multiple sin. That was the problem exposed. Secondly, the response expected. Notice the response of the Corinthians in verse 2, and you are arrogant. The NIV says pride. We looked at that word before. It means to be puffed up. For reasons that we can only speculate, the Corinthians were actually proud of the wickedness in this congregation. Indeed, in verse 6, we are told that they actually boasted about it. Your boasting is not good. No wonder it was generally reported everywhere, far from feeling ashamed and 
trying to hide the sin, the Corinthians were actually boasting in the most arrogant way. They probably excused it or rationalized it. They imagined themselves to belonging to a, a spiritually elite group of Christians, a special church who could embrace such things and not be affected by them. Now, it wasn't that they were ignorant of the matter, because if you go down to verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So, Paul, in a previous letter to 1 Corinthians, so 1 Corinthians minus 1, had written to them about this matter, but they knew better. Perhaps it was in the name of Christian liberty they tolerated the man. Oh, it wouldn't be right for us to judge him. You know, he has his own conscience. Let him do what he wants. Perhaps it was in the name of Christian love. We can't treat a brother harshly. We've got to respond to him in love. Or perhaps it was money, because this man could afford to alienate his father by stealing his wife. He uh, may have been independently wealthy, and perhaps like in so many churches, money not only talks, but money tolerates. So, their response then, unbelievably, was one of arrogance, pride, and boasting. Now, what should they have done? Well, verse 2 again, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The response they should have made was to mourn over this, the sin of this man and exercise discipline towards him. They ought to have mourned, filled with grief. They ought to, as Jesus said, mourn over the condition of this man, because blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That the Christian is to be distinguished by this grief over sin, and what is true of him individually must be true of the church collectively. The church collectively should have mourned over the feelings of this man and then put him out of membership. The question that Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper, is so often used to excuse sin. But in the church, we have mutual obligations and collective responsibilities. And when one sins, that ought to be a source of deep grief to the whole body. And they ought to then have removed him. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul actually is using the past tense as in the NIV, and he is saying that this is what you should have done. You should have mourned, and you should have removed him from membership. If they truly loved this man, they would have acted in this way. This was the right response, the biblical response, and the loving response. They ought to have removed him from membership. That's the action that they should have taken. They ought to have mourned over his sin and removed him from membership. Just notice in passing that this discipline is called for, for grievous sin. It's the sin of immorality. This man was having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. He wasn't going into the pub to have a meal. His wife wasn't wearing trousers. He wasn't playing sport on a Sunday. He wasn't failing to come to the prayer meeting. He was sleeping with his stepmother. And it seems to me that discipline in the New Testament is reserved for scandalous sins. Some pastors and some churches are trigger-happy when it comes to discipline and end up disciplined for the most trivial of reasons. Discipline 
excommunication, putting somebody outside of the church is reserved for serious, serious sins. The response expected. They ought to have mourned and they ought to have removed him from membership. The problem exposed, the response expected, the action encouraged. Paul has already told them what they should have done. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In verse 3, he tells them that he already, as an individual, had passed judgment on the man. And he asks them to be one with him in this judgment and take the needed action to rectify the situation. Look at verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, notice Paul calls for a church meeting. He, as an apostle, doesn't discipline the man. He doesn't call on the elders or the presbytery to discipline the man. He calls the church to discipline the man. Since it's the church that brings people into membership, it must be the church that removes people from membership. The church was to come together in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, a proper, official, formal members' meeting had to be called. And Paul says, just as I will be with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. That's a significant phrase. Remember that wonderful promise of Jesus where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of Matthew 18. That is in the context, that promise is given in the context of church discipline, where if your brother sins against you, go to him individually, establish it in two or three witnesses, uh, and if he still fails to repent, tell it to the church, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. That in a, a church meeting called to take disciplinary action, Jesus promises to be there. John MacArthur says, never is a church more in harmony with heaven and operating in perfect accord with her Lord when dealing with sin to maintain purity. Jesus promises to be at this meeting. So it's serious to him. And then he says, uh, Paul says in verse 5, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Now, various theories are propounded at this particular point. Some say it means like Job, that God's Spirit is withdrawn from him, his protection is withdrawn from him, and he then faces in his body the torments of Satan, the illnesses and difficulties that Job encountered. I personally don't believe that. I don't think that's what the text is teaching. I take the statement in verse 5, deliver this man to Satan, to parallel verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. That there are two kingdoms in this world. There is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom of Satan. There is the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And to hand him over to Satan was to put him outside the church, to hand him over to the world. It means to withdraw fellowship 
and the means of grace from this man, to put him outside the fellowship of God's people, leaving him exposed in Satan's kingdom, in Satan's world. The word deliver there is a strong word and indicates a judicial act of sentencing. He is to be formally removed from the church. Now, the purpose of that removal from the church is the destruction of the flesh. The NIV says the sinful nature, and I think that's better because when Paul speaks of the flesh, generally, mostly, he's not referring to the body. He's referring to the sinful nature. Sarks is the Greek word. It means the sinful nature. And Paul says in Galatians 5 and verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And then he says, we as Christians have crucified the flesh. So, the the flesh, you see, refers to that old sinful nature and tendency within us that the Christian is called to crucify, to put to death the works of the flesh and to walk by the Spirit. And so, to hand this man over to Satan is to, to deprive him of the very things that he needs in this battle with the flesh, in this battle with the old nature, like the fellowship of God's people, like the prayers of God's people, like the preaching of God's Word, like the partaking at the Lord's Supper. All these things are means of grace to strengthen us for the battle. We sang that earlier with the battle with the flesh, that we have to put to death the flesh, And to hand this man over to Satan was to deprive him of the very things that would help him in that battle. Now, what would happen if he was handed over to Satan in this way? Well, the spiritual nature within him, if he was a true Christian, would so be horrified and revolted that it would be so shocked into repentance that he would seek restoration and his spirit would be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, that's the purpose of excommunication. In depriving the true believer of the means of grace, the sinful nature is destroyed and the spirit is ultimately saved. Now, of course, the false professor, the person who wasn't ever a Christian, they'll just carry on indifferent. Well, what does it matter? And without a care in the world, and they'll never be brought back to repentance. So, to hand him over to Satan means to put him outside the protection and the power of the covenant community and expose him to Satan's attacks. Such a person is in an extremely, extremely vulnerable spiritual position. It's equivalent to being dropped, defenseless, disarmed, and disowned behind enemy lines in occupied territory. And that's what excommunication involves. By putting him outside the church, it teaches him and expresses to him his need of true repentance. This sanction and action would have horrified the Corinthians because the church, well, there was no other church 
You were put outside the church. You couldn't go down the road and join the Presbyterians. You just couldn't do it because there was nowhere else to go. To be put outside the church was to, to say, in our eyes, you're not a true believer, that we're handing you over to Satan. And yet such an action was necessary to jolt this man into repentance. And we know from 2 Corinthians 8 that he actually was repentant. Now, you see something of the importance of the church. To be removed from the church is to be dropped in Satan's territory. In this world, we need the church. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, because we need the church. We need the fellowship of God's people. We need the prayers of God's people. We need the systematic teaching from the, the Word of God. We need constantly to be taken back to Calvary at the table of the Lord. We need to be constantly encouraged in our faith. To be deprived of these things is to be handed over to Satan, to be dropped in enemy territory. Now, you know what the sad thing is? There are some people, some Christians, who hand themselves over to Satan. By absenting themselves from the means of grace, they are leaving themselves extremely vulnerable in a hostile world. That's why you need to belong to a church. That's why you need to be baptized and in membership of a church. You need the church more, more, should I say this, more than the church needs you. You need the church. This is why you need to come to the prayer meeting. This is why you need to stay for the Lord's table. It seems incredible to me that something that was so dreaded and feared in the early church of being put outside the church through discipline Christians today will inflict on themselves. It's like spiritual self-harming. Are you so cocky and so sure of your own profession of faith that you think that you can make it through life without the church? It was Christ, the head of the church, who instituted the church and determined that we should be part of the church. We need the church. That's Christ's verdict. And his conclusion, that's why he, he, he placed us in churches, because we need one another. And that's why every member of the church ought to be faithful in his attendance and in his attitude. People have much too low a view of the church. Oh, I'll muddle through on my own. I'll, Frank Sinatra, I'll do it my way. Well, you see, if you say that, and if that's your attitude, you're, you're wiser than Christ Himself, because Christ put us in churches for a reason. The action encouraged. The fourth thing I want you to notice is the reason explained. There are two reasons given in the passage for discipline, the restoration of the individual and the protection of the church, the restoration of the individual. Look again at the end of verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Discipline sounds a very severe response to an individual, but it's the consequences of failing to discipline are much worse. If he was allowed to go unchecked, he would simply be confirmed in his sin. Discipline is a loving, necessary response that that individual might be restored and ultimately saved on the day of the Lord. Just as you discipline your children because you love them and you want the best for them, so the church must discipline to bring people back, to restore, to encourage uh, repentance. 
Discipline is good for the individual, and it's also good for the church then. Look at verses 6 and 7. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is something all of Paul's readers would have readily understood. The Passover feast celebrated the deliverance of the Jewish people from bondage in the land of Egypt. It was their redemption. And the Jews were required before the Passover feast to search their houses thoroughly, remove all leaven. They then made unleavened bread to eat at the feast, but they had to be absolutely sure there was no leaven in the house, and they would search out with a candle to every remote corner of their home to remove the leaven. The leaven represented the old life that they were leaving behind. And Paul then applies that to the church. He says, don't you know that you have left your old life with all the sinful habits and practices behind? Now, he says, if you fail to discipline, this man and his influence will spread like a cancer through the whole church. It will not stay long isolated. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? We might say one bad apple spoils the barrel. If left alone, this man's sin will permeate the whole church. Sin is infectious. It spreads. And if you tolerate sin in one area, that sin will then spread to other members of the church who will engage in the same sins that the guilty one is guilty of. When sin is willfully or casually left unchallenged and undisciplined, the very witness of the church is in danger of being lost. We must, as Paul says, cleanse out the leaven. We do that because of the restoration of the individual and because of the protection of the church. Now, very quickly, I want you just to notice our motivation in all of this. Look at verse 7. He says at the end of verse 7, For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You see, they searched for leaven before in the Passover meal, before the lamb was sacrificed. So they searched for leaven, and then they offered the sacrifice. Now, Paul says, our sacrificial lamb, our Passover lamb, has already been sacrificed. Therefore, we need to live out the implications of that, and we need to remove the leaven from our lives and from our fellowship. Do you see what he is saying? He is saying, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has already died, this is the only legitimate response that we should have to be filled with a holy hatred for sin and a determination to root that sin out of our lives. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's a bit like what Paul says in Romans 12, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy in the light of all that I've said about the gospel before in this epistle to the Romans and what Christ has done for us, you offer yourself up as a living sacrifice, 
holy, acceptable, and pleasing unto God. Because that's your reasonable worship. That's the reasonable thing, the NIV says, the reasonable thing to do. If our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, the only legitimate response is to tear and root that leaven out of our lives, that sin out of our lives. David Brainerd, who spent all his short adult life as a missionary to the American Indians, wrote, he says, I never got away from Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I found that when my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and Him crucified, I had no need to give instructions about morality. He says, my, my ministry wasn't, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. He says, when people were gripped with the knowledge of what Christ had accomplished for them on Calvary's cross by laying down His life, paying the price for sin, and purchasing their redemption, they spontaneously and willingly offered themselves up as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable and pleasing to God. So why discipline? Why be so ruthless with sin in our congregation and so ruthless with sin in our own hearts and in our own lives? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What other response could we make except yielding ourselves up, giving ourselves over, and seeing sin as the crucifiers of the Lord of glory and the root cause of all His suffering, and to be filled with a holy hatred for sin that abhors you and you want to turn away from it. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's the great motivation for discipline. Amen.